0: Okay, let's pray, and then we'll get into our text for today. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us safely through another week, bringing us to another day in which we can set this time aside for a very, uh, a very blessed event, and that is the gathering of the saints to worship our holy, glorious God and Father, and to rejoice in in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to reflect upon your glory and your mercy, your goodness and, and your justice. So Lord, we pray that as we dig into this text now and as we continue throughout uh, the morning as we worship you, that you would be in our midst. Father, we are lost without you. Uh, we are in a, in a fallen world and So we desperately need you. And so we pray that you would be with us today, encourage our hearts, help us to understand your truth, Lord, and help us to articulate it well and uh, deliver us from error and anything that would be dishonoring to you. And all of this, we are able to pray because of the finished work of our dear Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross. And we thank you in his name. Amen. All right, well, our text for this morning in our series is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And just by quick way of review, remember we're going through a series of some of the passages in Scripture that are given as warnings to God's people, to the saints. And uh, we are looking at these passages from 5 No wonder you guys all have black spots in your faces here. Let me move this. There, that's better. (laughs) Couldn't understand what? (laughs) All right, we're looking at these, asking five questions. These five questions, first of all, to whom is the warning addressed? And that gives us a context. Then what danger prompts the warning? Why is the warning given? Thirdly, what is the nature of the warning? That's really our exegetical part. What response is appropriate to the warning? And then uh, the fifth one is what encouragements are there for us to obey these warnings? And so today's passage comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the verses 3 through 8, and we'll refer to the broader context, but let's read uh, verses 3 through 8 together. Paul writing says, For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, and so we'll ask, first of all, to whom is the warning addressed. We're told in the very first verse of the letter that Paul is writing to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This first epistle, followed shortly by a second, was Paul's response to a report he had received from Timothy, who had been sent there for just this purpose. Generally speaking, Paul was pleased and encouraged by Timothy's report. By and large, things were going well with the church there in Thessalonica. However, there were a few matters Paul needed to give instruction on, and so he does. Without detailing all of those matters now, I do believe that the issues that Paul was dealing with in this letter are very similar to issues that our congregations in the U.S. are dealing with today. It is strikingly clear that the first letter to the church of Thessalonians in the first century is completely relevant to us today in the 21st century. We could be safe in saying that Paul was writing to the Church of the Sand- San Diegans at Pacific Hope, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what danger then prompts the warning? The temptation is always when pondering the book of First Thessalonians to explore the issues of the second coming of Christ. And reasonably so, for that is a significant topic in this letter. But for our purposes now, we want to reflect on the warning which we find in chapter 4. We are expressly alerted to the warning in verse 6. But why is the warning needed? Well, Paul is commenting on an overarching matter in the Christian life, the doctrine of sanctification. Timothy had apparently informed Paul that there were some issues in the church that were hindering their progress in this matter of sanctification. As we consider the nature of the warning in a moment, we will be more specific. But before we do that, I think it might help to understand what these saints were dealing with that elicited the warning. And as we think about it, I'm sure that we can see some similarities in our own culture as well. Very briefly then, the city of Thessalonica was a large and prosperous city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia and as such was culturally influential. It both reflected and influenced the popular culture of the time, particularly in trade and philosophy. It was clearly both multicultural and multi-ethnic, with the Roman pantheon and imperial cult being predominant. There was a sizable Jewish population as well, with several synagogues. There were multiple matters Paul addressed in this letter. He was trying to clear up some confusion among the brethren, particularly having to do with the second coming, and regarding those believers who had already died. The church was apparently surprised that persecution had continued as long as it had. The church was, or they were eager for Christ to return. In fact, and I think this is quite interesting, in light of the predominance of dispensationalism's pre-tribulation rapture teaching today, And Pastor John knows what I think of all that. It seems that they had grown so focused on the timing of the day of the Lord, they had become slack in their own pursuit of sanctification. Our text suggests to us that they were not concerned enough about their holy living, especially, we clearly see their sexual purity and their regard for others. The significance of the cultural influence, I think, is important here. The great challenge in the progress towards sanctification for the Christians in Thessalonica was to discern how to live as Christians in a pagan culture, a very influential pagan culture, and in anticipation of a future deliverance from this broken world and its effects on this broken life. We have that very challenge today right here, don't we? Evangelicals are struggling with how to live in our post-Christian society. What does it look like to be a Christian in our relativistic, multicultural, secular, and grossly immoral Pagan culture. I think there is very much reason for concern for us here. Although typically American evangelicals do not engage in the extreme vices of our culture, although sometimes professing Christians are guilty in the more subtle areas, evangelicals look very much like the secular culture. Report after report after report. Confirm analysis that there seems to be something of a crisis in the American church. That professing Christians, in essence, have the same desires and values of, as their heathen na- neighbors. And often mimic the very methods the world uses to satisfy those desires. Not necessarily the most scandalous attitudes and behaviors, but certainly the more respectable ones. Of course, we don't know the motives, uh, the ultimate motives underlying the patterns of others' lives. But a casual observation would seem to indicate that something is amiss in evangelicalism. That was most decidedly the case in the church at Thessalonica in the first century. And it appears to be the case in the church at large in America in the 21st century. All that to say that it is not the least unusual that the attitudes and the activities of popular culture will influence and impact the saints in any given age. It did in the first century, and it does today. You've heard the analytical question, is the shark swimming in the ocean aware that it's in the water? That's all it knows. In a similar way, it is entirely likely that unless there is an intentional attempt to do otherwise, people automatically assimilate into their particular cultural milieu without even being aware. But when the culture expressly violates God's standard of righteousness, that is a real problem, and it is a real danger for the assenting church. Furthermore, As we are about to see, God does not accept common cultural practice as an excuse for ungodliness. Hence, we have warnings in Scripture. So, then what is the nature of the warning? Well, let's look at the warning. Paul says in verse 6, As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. What What did he tell them and solemnly warn them about? Here it is. The Lord is an avenger. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. Now, there's an interesting observation. Do we love to consider the attributes of the Lord? Well, here's an attribute. The Lord is an avenger. John Frame says, "Vengeance is the work of God, and we can trust him to do it well. He cannot be otherwise than just." He refers us to Deuteronomy 32:25, where our God says, "Vengeance is mine, and recompense" And Psalm 94.1, where the psalmist prays, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. So what are these things that Paul is referring to? Well, he is talking about behavior that is just like the Gentiles who do not know God. Specifically, behavior that grows from the passion of lust that transgresses and wrongs our brothers and sisters. Our Lord is an avenger of those who have been defrauded and wronged. That is a general principle. In context, it is referring to sexual impurity and other issues addressed to the Thessalonian church, which would indicate that it would include other wrongs as well, including economic ones. So the clear implication here is sexual immorality is a sin against not only oneself, but against others as well. Furthermore, we have God's assessment of such sinful behavior in verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Do you see that word impurity? It sometimes is translated uncleanness. Frankly, God's assessment is that sexual immorality is dirty. It's soiled. There's a reason we have historically said that profane speech was using dirty language, filthy language. Now, please note, it is not our sexuality that is impure. Sex is not dirty. Indeed, it is to be celebrated in the context for which it was created by God. That is, within the confines of heterosexual marriage. God himself has determined the boundaries for our sexual activity. To transgress God's established limits is immoral. Immorality, particularly sexual immorality, God has called impure, filthy. So you see, one of the marks of a Christian, a Christian character trait, if you will, is that he abstains from sexual immorality. He knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. We know what sexual immorality is. We really don't need to go into great descriptive detail about that here this morning. But we know that it takes many forms. Now, the pagan culture in which the Thessalonians lived was an immoral and perverse culture. Sexual sin was commonplace. It was typical in that culture. The word for sexual immorality was the Greek word "porneus," from which comes our word pornography. The quality or state of being immoral, especially unchaste. It is sometimes translated fornication. This kind of behavior grows out of a failure to control one's own body and to live out of the passion of lust. Now, there are numerous scriptures to define what is entailed in all this. It is not a secret. There is no mystery here. But there is the thing, because we are relational beings, because we are part of a greater community, Sexual immorality is a transgression and wronging of others as well as abuse against ourselves. Incidentally, consensual immorality doesn't make it okay. It simply means that people are willfully abusing each other. And oh, by the way, love, even deep emotional feelings of affection doesn't negate this. Immorality, according to God's definition, is immorality. But sexual immorality is illustrative, not exclusive. Any behavior that is out of the passion of lust, whether it be sexual or material or psychological, whereby we transgress and wrong Our brother or sister is impurity and contrary to God's will for us. And incidentally, sexual immorality is an exceedingly selfish, self-centered, and self-gratifying sin. And it hinders our growth in sanctification. Now, please note the profound import of this. Look again at verse 6. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you see that? Take note. This is not the ranting of some psychologically suppressed Victorian prude. Trust me, I know otherwise. My flesh tells me otherwise. This is the word and will of God. To disregard this is to disregard God. And that is the height of audacity and stupidity. And our Lord is an avenger. Now please note this. We may not know what form the Lord's vengeance will take. We may not even be aware of it when it occurs, but be assured of this. Our Lord, our King, in his infinite wisdom, power, and justice, combined with mercy, knows just exactly what kind of vengeance is necessary to bring about his perfectly righteous will. And nothing can or will thwart his purposes. Justice will be served. Our Lord will see to it. Need I remind us that ours is a highly sexualized and promiscuous culture. We don't have to look very far to see the reality of that. We could give illustration after illustration from just about every dimension of our culture to see undeniably that we are a sexually immoral people group, not unlike, as Paul says, the Gentiles who do not know God. Furthermore, it seems our economy is energized by covetousness and an insatiable lust for more and more and more. The awful sin being exposed here is lust. Lust for sensual pleasure and material comforts, even and particularly at the expense of others. We are all being victimized by this immoral dynamic. But we need to pause and give honest evaluation, for it may be that... To greater or lesser degrees, we have been the victimizers, much like some to whom Paul was writing in the church in Thessalonica. One of the very troubling realities of our present time is that we see some of the same immoral behavior occurring in the professed Bible-believing churches all around us. It may be terribly sad, but it is not particularly surprising to hear of sexual immorality being somewhat commonplace, even within the evangelical community, including premarital activity, marital infidelity, and use of pornography. Perhaps less often, but yet on occasion, we hear of financial fraud and swindling among church members, particularly among some who make claim to being prophets and miracle workers. We would all do well to remember that our Lord is an avenger. Well, then what response is appropriate to this warning? Most simply stated, God's will believers is sanctification. And one of the means to that is sexual purity. We are to control our own bodies, according to verse 4, in holiness and honor. Now, that word holiness is the exact same word translated sanctification. We see it again in verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. That's our word. Regarding this, John Owen said, This is that which God wills, which he requires of us, that we be holy, that we be obedient, that we do his will as the angels do in heaven. The equity, necessity, profit, and advantage of this ground of our obedience might at large be insisted on. And were there no more, this might suffice alone. If it be the will of God, it is our duty. Carl Henry made some cogent comments drawn from this part of Paul's letter. He said, In Paul's very first epistle, we find a transition from a general reference to the will of God in its particular implications for daily life. This is the will of God, even your holiness, he writes in verse 3. And then he adds a series of exhortations for which divine sanction is claimed. The apostle exhorts these early Christians in the Lord Jesus that as you received of us, How ye ought to walk and to please God, even as ye do walk, that ye abound more and more in verse 1. This appeal for moral earnestness in the Christian life is based upon that consciousness that God is the ultimate source of the instructions. He that rejecteth, rejecteth not man, but God. Henry continues... What sanctification means for specific areas of life is set forth in full detail. Negatively, abstinence from fornication. Positively, the honorable and chaste satisfaction of sexual impulses. Negatively, the avoidance of a covetous and fraudulent taking advantage of neighbors. Positively, the increase of brotherly love and pursuit of a quiet living, mindfulness of one's own concerns, fulfillment of the responsibilities of work. And then Henry concludes, the moral force of this passage is at once obvious when one recalls the lust and covetousness frequently mentioned together in Paul's letters were the cardinal heathen vices... And that it was the fidelity of the Thessalonian converts to Christian standards that inverted their former manner of life and made holiness characteristic of the Gentile Christians. And we see that in our own culture today. Brothers and sisters, as we strive for purity in our own lives, that takes us out of step with the rest of our culture. It makes us odd. Some of you know that I've been working some moonlighting shifts, uh, trying, to, trying to bring in additional income. And, and one of the strange phenomena that I've been experiencing is people don't believe me. The men that I work with don't believe me when I tell them that I'm not interested in the sexual implications of the things that they're suggesting. They don't believe me. They laugh. And I have to confess, it's not, I can tell them I'm not interested, not because of me, but because God is my Father and I'm striving in my own life to be holy. I don't want to be like them, even though in the flesh I do, you know. That takes us right at What Well, it did this to the Thessalonians well. As a matter of fact, it has throughout the history of the church as Christians pursue godliness and holiness. The pagan culture hates them. I'm not sure whether it's because we ruin their fun or because we point out their evil. I'm not sure exactly what the motive is, but we know that is the motive. We need to be self-consciously And and we need to self-consciously and intentionally pursue holiness. Indeed, if by God's grace we are made aware of and convicted of our own guilt in these areas, we must confess our own sin and seek God's forgiveness through repentance. Brethren, repentance is a soul-cleansing process. And God wants our repentance. He loves our repentance. I love these words from Pastor Al Martin. A penitent and believing sinner recognizes that this great, mighty, transcendent, holy, powerful God is not simply a God out there somewhere, but He is now my God. And I am his child. And that not only needs to be realized at the point of salvation. It continues to be our realization as we proceed on in this life. Day by day. Hour by hour. Until we come to the end. And we are finally delivered from this fallen broken world. And the residual corruption and sinfulness of our hearts. Let me refer us to another aspect of all this. Look again at verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness. There's our word sanctification. And honor. We really haven't talked about honor, but it has to do with the amount at which something is valued. Something pricey. When we own or possess something which is quite valuable to us, we take special care of it, don't we? We're careful with it. We handle it with care, use it as it was intended to be used, keep it clean, and put it in its proper place. Depending on what it is, we may even display it, but we value it. That is how we are to control our bodies in honor. Our sanctification is of great value. Think with me about Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There it is. How are we to respond to Paul's warning? We are to flee from sexual immorality. We are to control our own bodies in holiness and honor. We are to glorify God in our bodies. As we are exhorted in Romans chapter 14 verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then... Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Well, then, what are our encouragements to obey? Your sanctification. Being set apart from sin unto holiness. We've talked about our Lord being an avenger, but that is not the normal focus of the believer. That is only what we need to remember if we choose to entertain sin in our lives. It is a motivator. But a better better motivator, a much more noble motivator and encouragement is to strive to be holy, to be like Jesus. Brethren and sistren, we were created to be holy. Sanctification, is part of redemption and part of our restoration to who we were created to be. It is being in the image of God. You know the feeling, don't you? You know that horrible feeling of disgust, shame, remorse, ugliness, when we are made aware of and convicted of sin in our lives and in our hearts it is awful you know why because you have been redeemed you have been bought with a price a very great price you were given a new heart and you've been called to righteousness to holiness to sanctification you've known that peace that passes understanding. You've experienced that joy that is indescribable and glorious. You belong to Jesus. And this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, I must say this. If you know that you are entertaining sin in your life, Either you allow yourself to indulge in sexual immorality without a sense of shame and guilt, or you cold-heartedly mistreat others to satisfy your own desires, it could be an indication that you have no interest in the things of Christ at all. Dear friend, if you have no interest in Him, you are in eternal danger. Call out to Jesus. Plead with Him. To save you from your sin. But even true believers. Because of the trials and challenges of this pilgrimage we are on in this life. Sometimes need to be reminded again. What is the encouragement to obey our Lord in this matter of purity? Experiencing the happiness of being holy. And in a joyous relationship with our Lord and our Savior. Listen to Pastor Spurgeon. I would rather sooner be holy than happy if two two things could be divorced. Were it possible for a man always to sorrow and yet be pure, I would choose the sorrow if I might win the purity. For to be made to love holiness... Is true happiness. Perhaps you are one who struggles with the powerful forces of the flesh, and I know some of us do. Once more, I offer some words of Spurgeon for your encouragement. Though you have struggled in vain against your evil habits, though you have wrestled with them sternly, and resolved and re resolved only to be defeated by your giant sins and your terrible passions. There is one who can conquer all your sins for you. There is one who is stronger than Hercules, who can strangle the hydra of your lust, kill the lion of your passions, and cleanse the Aegean stable of your evil nature, by turning the great rivers of blood and water of his atoning sacrifice right through your soul. He can make and keep you pure within. Oh, look to him. Amen, Brother Spurgeon. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the warnings from Scripture. In particular, this particular warning because of the day in which we live and the evidence we see around us that this is a problem in our churches. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would imprint upon our hearts the truths of your word, that you would cause us to look to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us, Lord, to be men and women who are pure and righteous and growing in sanctification. May Pacific Hope Church be a bastion of pure saints who glorify you and may we be a light to this dark and needy world. May you receive all the praise and the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.